Good evening. It's every other Sunday again, and welcome to Sustainability Now. That was a clip from a, a piece by Snuffy Walden called On the Road to Kansas. And today, <laughs> we're going to be visiting Kansas, ranging beyond California, uh, where we've been uh, limited before then. My guest today is Professor Jenny Reardon, a faculty member in the UCSC Sociology Part Department and director of the Science and Justice Research Center. Professor Reardon holds a Bachelor in Science and a Biology in BA, a, a Bachelor of Science in Biology and a BA in Political Science from the University of Kansas, and a PhD in Science and Technology Studies from Cornell University. She is author, most recently, of The Postgenomic Condition, Ethics, Justice, Knowledge After the Genome, published in 2017. Today, we're going to talk about her new project, Caring for the Prairie, which, uh, and here I quote, is a project involving biking through the prairies and small towns of Kansas, designed to develop embodied knowledge of the land and to find out more about attitudes towards contemporary U.S. politics from the denizens of the prairies. By talking about how to know and care for the land with her interlocutors, she uncovers layer by layer the interlocking effects of globalization, financialization, and environmental change on how they live their lives. So let's start with the prairie. How did you get onto this project, Jenny? Well, um, I guess it was three years ago, I was had to teach my large lecture course, Issues and Problems in American Society, starting on January the 8th, 2017. Trump had just been elected. I had put What's the Matter with Kansas on the syllabus. I was pretty sure all of my students from California would know nothing about Kansas, so I thought I would just go back and do a little mini What's the Matter with Kansas tour. This is the Tom Frank, um, the Tom Thomas Frank, Frank yeah, 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 best-selling book. Um, and so I was going to go to these little towns that he mentioned so I could have some photographs for my, for my PowerPoint. And I went back when I was at the University of Kansas, as you mentioned, um, my best friend had grown up on her family farm in, um, in the Flint Hills of Kansas. And I went back to her farm where she had moved back. And I, uh, her fa whole family knew I was coming. I had a long relationship with them. And half her family had voted for Trump and half the family had voted for Clinton and hadn't spoken since you know, they have really hadn't spoken about it since the election, but they all knew me. They had a 25 year relationship with me and it was a bitter cold day in Kansas. And they all came in out of the cold and started talking to me. And I was, I didn't say, you know, why did you vote for who you voted for? Cause that's not kind of what you do in Kansas. You don't ask people who they voted for, but you ask about, you know, what, why you think in general, you know, what happened happened and it got a conversation going and they all started talking to one another again. And my friend said to me, how did you do that? Like they haven't talked to each other since the election. And it was by asking really specific questions about them. You know, how do these policies like, how is the EPA, how are the policies that the EPA is putting down affecting your farm? And really asking them to be specific with me that led to, I think, a good conversation that surprised me. And then I thought I had started to be a long distance biker and I thought, look, there's a lot to learn by actually really sitting and talking to people and listening what they had to say. And I'd already known from previous um, long distance biking I had done that biking is a good way to not just know the land, but the people. So I thought, mm, okay, maybe I could bike across Kansas. And I remember saying to my friend, what do you think is more risky, biking from, from, uh, from London to Berlin, which I had done, 
or biking across Kansas. There's like definitely Kansas. Um, but anyway, that's a crazy project started and it, it really wasn't, I didn't, I actually didn't think I was going to be able to do it. Um, but that's how it started. Well, most time, most of the times people do this kind of field work by car. Yeah. So tell us about how, how this right. worked. Well, okay, so if I had done it by car, I don't think you could do this project by car. You know, if I had shown up in a car, I'm sure most of the people I'm, I'm talking to would not have talked to me. Part of the thing about a bike is it's sort of a diplomat. People, it's a very, it's very much of an anomaly to have someone show up to these little towns in Kansas on a, on a bike. There is something called Bike Across Kansas that every year happens. And usually people go from the west to the east because the wind blows right. um, from the west. And Kansas is actually the call word for the, for the south wind. And the wind usually blows, you know, greater than 20 miles an hour on any given day. So it's only a fool that goes from east to west, which is what I've been doing. Um, and I haven't been biking across so much Kansas so much as I've been going in loops. Um, right. Thus my fool's persona in the middle of Kansas. But it gets a good conversation going when I show up and you know, there was one time when I showed up in this little town of Marion, Kansas, and, and the person said to me, how did you end up here in the middle of nowhere? And I said, the middle of nowhere, this town, it has Wi-Fi. She had this flatbread pizza place, and she was from, she had come from Germany to, to Kansas as an immigrant in the 1980s on a sports scholarship. And we launched into a great conversation about immigration policy, et cetera. And um, that's, how, that's how these conversations start. You know, so mutual curiosity. So for those of us who have never been to Kansas, actually, I've been to Kansas. I did. Did you stop? I did dissertation research in Abilene at the Eisenhower Library, wow. which was very strange. But that's not. But I'm not. We're not here to talk about me. Um, <laughs> but that maybe, normally most people have been when I ask them, have you stopped? They're like, no, passed through. So you actually did stop. That's good. Yeah. No, I've never actually driven all the way across the state. Mm -hmm. But um, can you give us a sense of the geography of where you were, were doing yeah. research? Because I think that's kind of important, too. So there are three sites that I've been focused on, three sites for questions about how knowing and caring for prairie have been at issue in Kansas over actually centuries. Um, the first is the Flint Hills of Kansas. Um, there has, was an over 100 year debate about whether or not this country should have a, a national park devoted to tall grass prairie. Um, George Caitlin was the first person who was a, a painter and a, and a naturalist in the 1800s who first made the suggestion that we should preserve these prairies. They are the iconic American landscape. Um, um, and then there was an over 100-year debate, which I could talk more about. It's a very interesting story. And then um, the second site is outside of Emporia, um, outside of Salina, Kansas, where the Land Institute is, which mm -hmm. was started by Wes Jackson, a geneticist. And from you mentioned the book I just published, my previous, I, before I did anything else, I was in genetics research. And I learned about the work of Wes Jackson um, when I was in Kansas, um, trying to figure out how I was going to interweave my, my genetics and my, my interest in, in, in politics. And I learned about this geneticist, Wes Jackson, who had come back. He had founded one of the first environmental studies programs in the country here in California. Where? Uh, I think in Sacramento. Okay. And then um, went back to Kansas as part of the Back of the Land movement. Mm -hmm. And his, his sole key idea was to create a perennial wheatgrass. If the problem of the Dust Bowl had been the plow uh, breaking up the, the prairie grass and the sod and, and making it so that the soil blew away, then the answer was, well, don't have the plow, you know, plow up the soil, create a perennial wheatgrass that could just stay planted and you wouldn't need to plow it. 
And so the Land Institute has become one site for this research and, and, and reactions, community reactions to the Land Institute. And then the final site is far western Kansas, which is the land of the Dust Bowl, uh, which in the 1930s, um, you know, trillions of tons of soil blew away after the plow dug up this land that no one thought this is the great American desert, right, quote unquote, yeah. you know, past the 100th meridian. You weren't supposed to be able to, no one was supposed to live here, um, or uh, least of which to, to actually try to, um, you know, get agriculture going. Um, and uh, they, they plowed it up. And then as it would, as it does in Kansas, you go through periods of drought, years where you have rain and years where you don't. They went through some drought years. Anyway, um, that land um, uh, became, as we know, the Dust Bowl, famous uh, uh, moment in American history. But then in the 1940s, they started really pumping oil, which allowed them to uh, pump water because underneath of that land is the Ogallala Aquifer, the largest underland uh, sea in the world. And with wind, you can pump up water from 20 feet down. Mm -hmm. But with carbon power, you can get the water in the Ogallala Aquifer, which is 500 feet down. Mm -hmm. And that's what people did. And that's what brought, brought agriculture back to this land. But now the water is running out again. And so my questions are around what happens when the water runs out. Um, so those are the three sites. And just to say, Kansas, although people think it's flat, it actually goes up 3,000 feet. Um, it's going towards the Rockies. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and it, it slowly, it's like gently rolling hills. So, um, it's not flat. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. Um, so what, what do people think about what to do, you know, what to do out there? Well, so the, you know, that's a, there's lots of responses. Maybe we should yeah. back up for yeah. a second, right? Okay. What's, you know, I mean, what we read all the time about depopulation in the Great mm -hmm. Plains, right? Which must have some impact on the viability of agriculture. Yes. And I mean, maybe you can start with yes. that and then, yep. you know, segue into, well, what do they think can be done or should be done? Or... Well, so, so the, the radio show is called Sustainability Now. And, um, you know, there's, know an, there's an effort. <laughs> well, I was just saying that because the word sustainability, um, there's an effort uh, in Kansas to create something called sustainable beef. And... Yes. And one of the criteria for sustainable beef, you know how you can get little little labels, like they're trying to create a new label. And one of the ways that you would get this label, sustainable beef, is if you have a plan for how your beef operation is going to continue over the generations. So that part of, part of the problem, as you may know, is that um, there's been consolidation of farms, which one of the biggest insights when I, I was telling you, I had this conversation with my family, my, my best friend from college's um, family when I went back to Kansas. And my, um, um, her uncle who runs the farm, who I have a long relationship with. And I and I said to her uncle, you know, uh, what's you know, what are the what are the problems that farmers out here face? We hear about big ag. And he said to me, well, what is big ag? You know, there's no corporation out here taking over. What's happening is. You've got larger tractors. You have the technological capacity for less people to farm the land, and so farms have gotten bigger. Right. And um, and also as the generations have gone, you know, the youth have not wanted to stay in these little towns, and so depopulation has happened. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of towns, ghost towns, um, former thriving towns that, you know, very few people live in. Um, they've become places where. Uh, uh, the only reason to live out there is because you could buy a house for thirty thousand dollars. You know, it's uh, uh, you know, it's it's there's a lot of poverty in these towns. Um, 
So part of creating sustainable uh, in, in, agriculture industries for some people now is trying to you know counteract that because the 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 argument is if we have no town then we have no agriculture if there's nowhere for people to live then we're not going to be able to do this it will not be sustainable so um yes we have it it, it most of these towns have seen de declines in populations of between 25 and 50 percent i always look at the numbers when i'm going through town you can look at the census numbers and um yeah it's been a dramatic decrease in a lot of these towns Okay, well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to KSQD in Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM, and ksqd.org on the internet. Um, tune in to KSQD Tuesday mornings at 7 for Climate One, produced by the Commonwealth Club. Climate One is a forum for candid discussion among climate scientists, policymakers, activists, and concerned citizens with a focus on energy, the economy, and the environment. Climate One airs Tuesday morning at 7, and alternate Mondays at 6 p.m. here on KSQD 90.7 FM and ksqd.org. So this is Sustainability Now. I'm speaking with Professor Jenny Reardon from UCSC Sociology Department, and we're talking about Kansas. So um, Jenny was just telling us about the, uh, the agricultural consolidation and depopulation in, in across, across the state, right? Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, that's something that's happening around the world is that as farms acquire more technology, it becomes more expensive to, to operate yeah. and, and right. scale becomes important. And mm -hmm. so the poor, the, poor, the poor farmers lose out. This is actually the story of um, the Grapes of Wrath, mm -hmm. you know, that, yep. that although it's associated with a dust bowl, it's also a matter of, of people losing their land, becoming tenant farmers and eventually losing their land to the banks. And there's yeah. a famous scene in the book yeah. of the tractors, you know, running in a line across the farms, um, turning over the soil and basically having mm -hmm. driven all of the people, the people out. Right. So it's kind of a, it's, it's not something new. No. Um, well, what, so what do people want to do? Well, you were talking about sustainable beef, which sounds like a, a, a an oxymoron to me. Uh -huh. I just recently encountered it somewhere, but I can't remember what I read about. So, yeah, what what does this mean exactly? Well, they're working that out. Um, it's uh, it's an effort by um, there's there's somebody that I know who's a leader of it in Kansas, who I've met through this project, mm -hmm. who's a who um, has a, a bull farm. Um, and they're trying to figure out the criteria right now. They've been going through open comment, the, uh, but it's part. It's an it's an it's an initiative led led by those in the industry. Yeah, sure. Um, mm. You know, there. I think those who are in this industry understand that that they face real challenges, and so they need to figure out uh, how to address these questions of the sustainability. Um, you know, last time I was there, the almost real burger, what are these things, Beyond Burger or the vegetarian Yeah, these new, yeah, these yeah. new things that had come out had just made it to the market and I was hearing all kinds of anxieties about that and how are, you know, cattle ranchers going to compete with this? Um, so um, there's a lot of initiatives going on um, and there's, a, you know, these are, these are folks who uh, understand that they have to respond to changes, um, both in, um, you know, that are socioeconomic problems of living in these small towns and in the environmental challenges that we face. Because, you know, cattle are, are, are they eat 
corn. They didn't always eat corn. That's a that's an important point. There's a there's a discussion. In, Kansas is a site of the last remaining tall grass prairies, largest swaths of tall grass prairie yeah, yeah. Um, in the country and really around the world. And um, cattle have. Uh, there's a whole industry around bringing your cattle from, you know, they might be born in the South and then you bring them to the, to the pasture lands of Kansas to fatten them up. And then you take them to the feedlots. Um, but you didn't always finish the cow, quote unquote, finish these cows off at feedlots. That, that's a new phenomenon, feeding cows corn. They didn't used to eat corn. Um, but corn is a water hungry crop. Right. So there is a recognition that that way of producing um, cattle is facing um, its limits and its ends. So there's a lot of that's what I'm tracking is different response. Part of what I'm tracking anyway. I mean, there's lots of things I'm looking at, but part of what I'm tracking is responses to that and how people are, you know, and this is one of the initiatives. Yeah. Are 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 there any crops being grown around these areas you're looking at, or is it just ranching? No, 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 no. It's, oh. um, you know, you think of the Oklahoma, the, I don't know if you know the, the play Oklahoma, and there's that song about how yeah. farmers and ranchers don't like each other. Yeah, um, yeah because the, the ranchers want, uh, don't the farmers want fences and the ranchers don't. They want yeah. open range. Yeah. And and in this part of Kansas, the um, I've taken photos before that will show... Um, you know, people, a lot of people think that Kansas is flat, but it's not, you know, there's the Flint Hills and the thing about the Flint Hills is that they have Flint in them. Um, and so no one has ever managed to, to plow up those, those hills to make for agriculture there. And on, you know, as we know, on a day like today, it's really windy out, you know, on the tops of hills are the windiest places. It's very bad for, for agriculture. The water would blow away. The reason why there's not a lot of trees in Kansas is because the wind blows so strongly. It's not just a matter of precipitation. Mm. It's a matter of the wind whipping away, whatever precipitation, precipitation there is. So on the top of these hills, you can't get um, corn or wheat or anything to grow. So they've always, it's always been cattle land or well, it always, let me say the question of temporality in Kansas is an important issue because, um, you know, there weren't always cattle in Kansas. There were buffalo. Um, there were before there were ranches. There were native peoples, which is a whole other. And I want to talk about that yeah. a little bit. But, yeah. So, but I want to just note that because, you know, how we talk about time is an issue in Kansas. Um and uh, so the, the the top of the the top of the hills or the cattle lands and then the bottom lands, um, you often get all these creeks running through them, and that's where you get the rich agricultural soil. And so <laughs> the farmland happens down there. Uh-huh. So I've been um, interviewing both farmers and ranchers, and that has been illuminating to get both of those perspectives. They're what very they, different. What do they say? So tell us about that. What's what's what do they say? Well, the ranchers are, are, are much more, I think, prone to uh, be those who are in alliance with the environmentalists. So they're really, yeah, because yeah. they, because for them, preserving the prairie, quote unquote, is the cattle are a part of preserving the prairie as long as you, you know, the, there's a kind of saying, you know, leave half, you know, let the cattle eat half and then leave half. Now, you're under those conditions, you're never going to get the iconic, you know, 14 foot, you know, uh, little and big blue stem um, prairie grasses that everyone yeah, associates, yeah. associates with, you know, if you read Little House on the Prairie and you read about, you know, people who couldn't see above them, you know, themselves through the grass, that's not going to happen. But you will, uh, you can get a pretty um, diverse uh, ecosystem with cattle grazing the land. And so um, 
you know, it's much more to be said about that point. And actually that relates to questions around management of the Tallgrass Prairie Park, where I've heard, you know, these various discussions about, should we bring the buffalo back? Are they better? You know, the cattle. Um, but farmers, they're much more likely to be concerned about things like um, the Waters of America Act, you know, the, the famous, uh, you know, Obama you know, one of the reasons why farmers in Kansas were voted for Trump is that they thought that Obama's environmental policies, uh, quite specifically the Waters of the America Act, Act um, had gone too far. That every, that that now they were being regulated. You know, every little ditch they built, you know, they dug to to get water because there's not a lot of rainfall in Kansas. So one way that you that you collect water is through digging out and creating your own ponds. A lot yeah, of these are. Yeah are human-made ponds, and then the government now said, well, we want to regulate all those. And if you happen to have this, this, there's this one little fish in Kansas that's protected, and if you happen to get one of those fish in your pond, then, you know, you're, you're in trouble. Because, you're out of luck, yeah. Yeah, you're out of luck. So, um, so farmers are much more, um, I think, have been affected by the EPA policies, although the, that affects the ranches as well. There is this one little tiny fish in Kansas that... Um, you know, that is protected, that um, if it's on your land, then then uh, there are you can't do certain certain types of things within so many feet of that that stream or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are broad. That's not to say that there aren't um, there are there are, say, farmers in in western Kansas who have been. Um, uh, and not just farmers, but you have um, uh, folks at the community colleges who are building programs around irrigation technology, you know, trying to, you know, basically create what they've been calling, you know, this term precision agriculture gets used. You know, so the answer is if the water is running out, then let's take every let's monitor every drop and make sure that we're not wasting a drop of water. Um, and so farmers in that part of Kansas have been. Um, um, leading that effort because they have the biggest problem when it comes to water. Um, mm -hmm. If you go across Kansas, the water, um, the amount of water you have decreases drastically. The amount of water that a rainfall there is uh, decreases drastically from eastern Kansas to western Kansas. So you're talking about di two different states, really, when it comes to environmental conditions. Eastern Kansas gets, you know, something like 30 some inches of rain and and western Kansas, something like 10 to 15. So, um, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, well, uh, we talked earlier about the, uh, the the hypothesis, the theory, the argument that rain follows the plow, and the hundredth meridian, right, runs right. through, runs right down the middle of Kansas, yeah. and historically, rain-fed agriculture has moved back and forth depending on on the rainfall. Can you tell us a little bit about that, a little more about that, or did I just say everything? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, so eastern Kansas doesn't have to worry nearly as much about water as western Kansas does. And I think that's that there is a people often talk about we talk in California about how there's northern California and southern California and they're two different states. Well, the same thing applies in Kansas. In fact, people talk about three different states. There's eastern Kansas, central Kansas and western Kansas. And it's true that, you know, they feel like very different places. Uh, one of the questions I know this is not your question, but I'm just going to say this now. Um Every time I talk to people and I interview them, my first question always is, what is prairie? And are we in a prairie? And you get out to western Kansas, and that's an interesting question because they will, they are less likely to tell you you're in prairie. They're more likely to tell you you're in the high plains. Um, and it is very much about, um, you have no, we really have no trees out there. I mean, it's, 
it is a very different place um just visually and you do have this sense of just this it's just the big sky um so you so the eastern the 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 folks in eastern kansas don't worry so much about water um and the folks in uh, and 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 they get on their environment you know like there's also an urban rural split here where the where the rural part of especially western kansas thinks that all the environmental movement you know people on the eastern part you know they don't understand and they're you know they don't they don't get the 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 challenges that are facing the western kansas um but so that is also why irrigation is a big deal in western kansas and not in eastern kansas so you might mm. know about the center pivot technology I was ask right yeah. yeah so anybody who's flown over the country and looks down and see those circles that's an, that is a sign of an innovation in irrigation technology from about the 1960s um, we started to have you know it used to be that people would just bring pipes out into the into the fields and basically flood them with water, but that was very inefficient. And then they came up with this uh, center pivot, you know, where the water basically comes out of these sprinklers that are on a circle that run around the, the, the field. And now you have what you call drag and drip. So instead of shooting the water through a, a sprinkler, you have a pipe that, or a hose that comes down and um, drips onto, huh. the, onto the plants. Uh-huh. Um, but that you see in Western Kansas and not in Eastern Kansas. Um, so the real urgent water problems of the state are in western kansas and in fact i don't know if listeners will remember uh, around this time last year especially in march of last year we had the big epic floods um in um it, when i flew into kansas right, yeah. when i actually yeah. when i was in kansas in march of last year there were the missouri river was over its banks and i ironically had gone to talk I, like i was there partly i biked from to topeka kansas to talk to folks in the um in the water office um, in Kansas about drought, but here we were in a flood. So um, one of the things we talked about was the longstanding proposal to build a pipeline from the Missouri River up 3,000 feet, 500 miles to Western Kansas to deliver. The problem is not not enough water. The problem is the water is in the wrong place. That's the argument that people would make. That's what one always hears, right? It's, right. Up in, it's up in the Arctic, and we need it yeah. down here, so we'll get icebergs. Yeah, yeah. There, well, that was an actual proposal. Yeah, but right. I don't know how you'd get an iceberg to Kansas. That's the only thing. Mm-hmm. You melt yeah. it and put it through a pipeline. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah, well, right, and there's the pipeline from British Columbia. I mean, there are all kinds of, you know. There's always going to be a technological somebody's, solution. Somebody's going to think about that. Um, well, you mentioned this this difference between uh, the prairie and the high plains, yeah. which actually I had not been aware of, you know. <laughs> um, and I was just thinking about High Plains Drifter, that uh-huh. great Clint Eastwood film. Um, uh-huh. But um, watch it. it's not about yeah, it's not about agriculture. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, what's what's in a couple of minutes before we have to take a break? Yeah. What's tell tell us what's the difference there? Oh gosh, I wish I could give you an answer. Um, so you know, I asked. I, I really like this question. What is prairie? Um, one person said to me, "The prairie is a little lilt in the land." Um, it's it's a poetic thing for some people. I mean, the prairie yeah. is like America. The yeah, prairie yeah. is. Little House on the Prairie. Prairie is I could the icon iconic, um, is an iconic thing in the American imaginary. High Plains well, is, it's less. I mean, for those who live in the High Plains, they're very attached to the High Plains as a as a as a as a thing. I'm I'm 
and they've and I'm but I'm yet to really understand what the investment is in high I mean it it literally is high I mean it's it's on its way to the Rockies so it's 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 much higher it's about 1500 feet higher than the than the than, than the center of prairie in the Kansas and the Flint Hills um but you know it's a question that I've been asking and uh it is it is something that means something to people that I've been trying to to figure out Altitude and attitude. Altitude and attitude, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, um, you're listening to KSQD in Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM and ksquid.org, uh, streaming on the net, and we're going to have a short break. So, Hello, this is Ralph Nader, and you are listening to KSQD, Santa Cruz's brand new community radio station. Buddhism, Judaism, Baha'i, Islam, Christianity, Hinduism. Sound interesting? Faith Matters is a unique bi-monthly program that explores spirituality, life, and meaning with local religious leaders. We discuss areas of common ground and also identify distinct differences among diverse spiritual perspectives. Join us on the second and fourth Sunday evening of every month from 6 to 7 as we have thought-provoking conversations about Faith Matters on 90.7 KSQD. KSQD thanks Sustainable Systems Research Foundation for supporting sustainability now. SSRF provides education, research, and advocacy for regional environmental quality and sustainability-related problems and solutions. For information, visit SustainableSystemsFoundation.org. And thank you, SSRF, for supporting community radio. KSQD 90.7 FM. You're listening to Sustainability Now on K-Squid uh, 90.7 FM. My, this is Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest this week is Professor Jenny Reardon from the Sociology Department up on the Hill. And we're talking about Kansas and about uh, Jenny's research project, Biking Around Kansas, talking to, to people out there. Um, for most of us, well, I won't say for most of us, but, but most of us only see Kansas from a height of 30 or 35,000 feet. We were just talking about the uh, crop they're not crop circles, they're irrigation circles. And I've noticed over the years how more and more of them are turning brown because they're mm -hmm. sort of being abandoned, mm -hmm. it seems like. Um, what's the prospect for the for the Ogallala Aquifer? I mean, we keep hearing that, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's going, going, going. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's something I've been um, asking people about, um, and there's not an easy answer to that. Um, there's the Kansas Geological Survey has about a thousand test wells in Kansas, and you know Kansas, which is known as a state that um, you know famously uh, decided to uh, not teach evolution or to say, look, you can teach intelligent design in your classes is, you know, some people think of it as being anti-science, but when it comes to water, it has the most data about water than any other state in the country. And it's very uh, focused on understanding what's going on with the Ogallal Aquifer. And so they have these test wells um, and they, uh, they recently um, released some data that, um, you know, prior, prior to them releasing the data, I think everyone thought, okay, the water is running out now. 
And now there's new data that suggests, well, maybe those are a little more recharged than we thought, you know, from water that's coming down, you know, rain that's coming down now and percolating in. You know, which raises questions about how do you model what's going on in the Ogallala? How do you trust the models? You know, how do you measure this water? Which is part of what I'm getting into with folks about issues of trust, who who trusts who. Um, and that's actually one of the issues is, you know, you need to have uh, farmers and ranchers trust the data that's coming out and you need them. One of the issues has been there's a lot of resistance to the state coming in and telling people what to do in Kansas. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those places. Um, and the last governor, um, the not the last government, but two governors back, Brownback, who you may know about, yeah. who went into the Trump administration. One of the things that he did, um, and Brownback is, is actually... Um, uh, people think that he had a, uh, an important influence on uh, Trump's tax policies. I don't know how many people will know that Kansas had a very radical change in its tax policies and caught right. all these taxes and right. led to kind of a disaster for bankrupt. the state. Yeah, it was a little bit of a disaster <laughs> for the was, state. It uh, was supply-side economics, I remember now. Yeah. Was that Brownback's idea? It was Brownback. Uh. Yeah, and Trump picked that up. So, um, But one thing that, that Brownback did do um, that, that maybe had a less... Um, um, damaging effect on the state was he did a, a water vision. He had a water, water vision um, uh, policy where he then went around the state and talked to uh, farmers and ranchers about what their vision of how water should be used, knowing that, I mean, that it's been known for a long time that if the water runs out in Kansas, it's a big problem because agriculture is a huge part of the economy in Kansas. And so um, the state understands that it needs to, to do something about this, but it also understands that it can't just go in and tell its people what to do. So it did this. We want to listen to you. We want to hear what you have to say. And what came out of that is that they came up with these, this, this thing called the LEMAs, which I've been hearing about, which is limited enhanced management areas, which basically is a way for the state of Kansas to give local communities more control over their water policy. They could decide. So, so. I don't know how many details you want to get into. Water policy can go many routes, but people were given like you dug a well um, first in. There's it's it, the policy. The water policies come from California, which is first you know, in first, first in line, first, first, first in right. time, first in line, first in yeah. time, first in line. Right. right. So right, whoever right. dug the well first has yeah. priority. It yeah. doesn't matter whether that makes any sense or not, agriculturally, <laughs> environmentally. But the first person in gets the rights. Um, and uh, that was the policy. Um, and so the idea that you could have community control over the water is a new idea. Um, but the only way it was going to work is if the community itself decided, you know, that we want to do that. We want to we want to actually we could technically, according to the state, we are licensed individually to draw, more, say, 30 inches a year of water out of this out of our well. But we're going to voluntarily dial it back to 17 inches. And we collectively have decided as a community we were going to do that because we don't want to see the end of our industry here in this generation. Does yeah. the community then also allocate amounts of water depending on, you know, individual farmers' needs or something like that, according to acreage? I mean, um, is it ultimately, it, well, it sounds like a, 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 a controlled access commons. That's not what it's called. But, uh -huh. you know, yeah. basically a, a yeah. community-regulated a community regulated, um, yep. resource operation, which everyone has to cooperate in terms yep. of how much they use. Um but I mean, what happens to someone who violates the? So it becomes uh, so it's community decided, but then the state then has the authority to enforce it. 
Got it. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so it's sort of like property rights and enforced by the state. It's a sort of, well, yeah. you know, it's, Use it's, rights. it's kind of like, yeah. yeah, it's kind of like a, a permit, permit. You, sort of you technically and, still have your property, right? Yeah. But you back, you, you don't take the full amount. Right. Then, right. Something right. You like voluntarily. That, yeah. I'm a little unsure whether, how that affects the actual property, right? Those are things that I'm, I'm working out of the details of that stuff, but this in general, that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's pretty interesting. Oh, well, let's talk about what was what was what was Kansas before it was Kansas. Who lived there? And yeah, so um, Kansas, uh, you know, is a Plains state where Plains native native peoples live there. Um, uh, it uh, buffalo were there were a lot of buffalo in the um, the part of Kansas, I was talking about the Flint Hills. Um, and so it was an important site for um, Native peoples for that reason. Um, it then became, you know, a lot of the forced migrations of Native yeah. peoples out of the South and the East and pushing pushing um, a uh, nations like the Ka out to, um, out to Kansas. Um, and then, so in the 1800s, um, you had the Ka were a big presence in, in Kansas, um, but there were other uh, Native peoples there as well. And then um, uh, in the 18, um, with the Santa Fe Trail, things began to really change. Um, and people started going through Kansas to get to California. And, um, uh, you know, there's a whole complicated history here, but, um, you know, that's when you get the Methodists coming out and saying, we're going to civilize, quote unquote, um, the call and we're going to build a mission and uh, we're going to teach them agriculture because of that, you know, that the idea was that uh, a civilized people would not be nomadic. Right, they wouldn't right. move around. And so the idea was to teach them agriculture so they could settle down. And um, that was a huge fiasco. It failed utterly. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, so the call end up uh getting forced onto smaller and smaller bits of land as, um, you know, set, quote unquote settlers, you know, in, built into that, that word itself is the ideology that if you settle, you know, you're a civilized person. Yeah, yeah. Um, as more and more of these settlers come and want to, this is prime agricultural land in this part of Kansas. Uh -huh, it's, uh -huh. it's uh, there, it's not, it's, it's east of the 100th meridian. Yeah. It has rich soil. You know, Kansas was, if you go way, way back, what was Kansas a long time ago? Well, it's an ocean. It, it was, it was an ocean. And then the Rocky Mountains come up and, and the, all the, 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 the winds that are blowing from the west um i told you the winds blow from the west was blowing the soil off of the rocky mountains onto kansas so you ended up oh, having yeah. very rich soil in kansas yeah, yeah so yeah. that's why you know some of the best uh, agricultural lands in the in the country were in kansas at one point and so um, once people figured out it wasn't the great american desert um, you know, a lot of, there was a time, um, in the 18th century where, you know, famously Lewis and Clark like said, okay, anything west of the Missouri river is, you know, no man's, you know, yeah. quote unquote, mm -hmm. it's the great American desert. Um, but that was soon discovered of course, to be, you know, not true, especially in Eastern part of Kansas. So as more people discovered that, and, um, also the other thing I should say is that Kansas was a key battleground state over slavery. Yeah. Um, and so Kansas became a focus of settlement, quote unquote, um, as the, the larger, um, uh, uh, 
battle in the in the United States was happening over whether or not um, whether or not slavery um, was going to reign. And um, this is prior to the Civil Civil War and the years prior to the Civil War when Kansas was coming into the Union. Folks, abolitionists from the East Coast took Kansas as a battleground and sent people out to settle Kansas yeah, yeah. Um, to make it a free state. Um, so, but what we don't, what we often do is celebrate, we celebrate that part of Kansas, but we forget that in the name of that form of justice, we we basically created this other huge form of injustice where we pushed native peoples off the land. And then they went to Oklahoma, which at the time was called quote unquote Indian country. Mm-hmm. I have an old map of Kansas where you have Nebraska, Kansas, and then underneath of that was Indian country. So now the call are based in Oklahoma. Um, uh, but recently, um, 10 years ago, the call bought back land, you know, so they have money from casinos now and they bought lot back the land, some of the land that was a former site of the mission. Um, in Kansas. And so there's this interesting return now. Uh, Kansas is one of, I think, maybe the only state in the Union where basically all the Native peoples were were pushed off. Um, you know, Nebraska might be another such such state. But places like North Dakota, South Dakota still have, you know, a, a pretty large presence of Native peoples. But, but in Kansas, they really were pushed mm, pretty much entirely mm-hmm. out. But now, in the case of the call, they are, they are returning. Um... So, 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 but by the 1870s or so, basically you have no native, very few native, maybe the Potawatomi have a very small, um, uh, kind of still had a very small um, reservation in Kansas, but most of the native peoples had been faced, forced into, into Oklahoma. And so, you know, there's a whole other discussion to be had about how that affects, you know, contemporary Kansas that still lives on in in people's memories about Kansas. I mean, I've been through towns, many towns where they have old settlers day and basically history begins in 1856, you know, when Kansas became a state and that's what's celebrated. Um, So this is a this is still an ongoing legacy of of that, you know, forced removal of the native peoples off the land every american state has its own peculiar version of nationalism yes right yeah and and its own creation history i mean it's it's uh if if we weren't the united states what a mess this place would be yeah um uh the the other thing (laughs) (laughs) the the other thing um that i wanted to to bring up um and maybe after the break we can talk a little bit more about about politics was was that uh, in, in 1987 two academics at uh NYU in New York, Frank and Deborah Proper, mm-hmm. Popper uh, published a paper. They were observing the depopulation of small towns across the Great Plains, and I guess the High Plains too. And they proposed letting it revert to grasslands, uh, and they call it the Buffalo Commons, you know, basically bringing the buffalo back. Um, I thought when I first heard about it that it was a sort of fascinating idea, and of course, it was widely ridiculed at the time. How could you possibly? And what happens to all the people? Um, a- anything like that going on right now? Yeah, no. They, I've encountered many a buffalo in Kansas, and they always have an interesting story. The buffalo do. Um, I could regale you with buffalo stories for the rest of the night, but well, just tell um, us one. Tell you mm-hmm. one. Well, I mean, maybe the most important one. To, uh, which one do I want to tell? I'm going to tell this one. Um, so I'll say Garden City. Garden City, very important place in in Kansas. Um, uh, 
a home of the of the one of the largest um, slaughter um, houses, or they don't call it that, beef packing um, in the country. Um, uh, a very diverse place, actually, too, because of the workers that have been brought in to work right. at the plant. Yeah. Um, it's on the Arkansas River, and um, it's also beyond the hundredth meridian. And at the turn of the century, back in the turn of the front into the twentieth century, so nineteen hundred nineteen nineteen ten or so. The <laughs> the U.S. government was trying to get people to to settle that part of Kansas because it was not it was hard you hard, know it didn't have as yeah, much rain yeah. and in order to prove up as it were you needed to you know to get your homestead and whatever you needed to plant some trees but the question was um, I know I'm gonna be getting to the buffalo here in a minute but but the the question was well, what trees could you plant in this part of Kansas that could grow so you could prove up and get your homestead and so. Um, Teddy Roosevelt uh, was president around that time, and he also believed that trees were civilizing, a civilizing force. Um, a civilized people has trees. This is the origins of Arbor Day. That sounds very Germanic. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but this is the origins of Arbor Day. Um, and so the federal government establishes a national forest in, uh, in this part of Kansas and plants thousands and thousands and thousands of trees. Uh, between 1900 and 1915 or something like that, thereabouts. And uh, I might not have the exact dates right, but around then. And they all die except for 20. And actually, I made a special. So then I wanted to make a special mission to find these trees. Like, do, can I still find them? And uh, that is the source of a very interesting long story. Um, but uh, one thing I then came across as a result of trying to find those trees was a buffalo herd. Because after the trees died... The idea was, well, we can bring the buffalo back. And um, and this was something that, you know, again, it's part of that, that going back to that kind of iconic idea of what of what the West is. We should have our buffalo. And so they brought back this herd that, you know, the buffalo don't like the sand sage prairie very much. I mean, they like they like Western Kansas. Uh -huh. I mean, sorry, uh -huh. Eastern Kansas, the Flint Hills, because they have all that rich prairie grass. But when, once you get to the Western Kansas sand sage prairie, you know, they would have passed through there, but they wouldn't have stopped. They would have, you know, it would have been like you or me trying to get through Kansas. You know, they're like, we want to go to the rich prairie grasses. But yeah. no, they got stuck in the sand sage prairie. So one day I tried to bike out to see these trees and I got stuck because there's sand. I mean, it's called sand sage prairie because there's there's a sand and bikes, you know, quite classically don't go over sand very well. Yeah. So then I encountered someone who who was the 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 range manager the uh, of this piece of land in Kansas, and they offered to give me a ride out. And we it was it was just turning from from summer to fall, and we had to take the feed out to feed the buffalo because um, they could no longer survive on the sand stage. So we're like you know driving out in a truck um to to these buffalo and here comes this huge herd of buffalo like running towards us as if <laughs> as if we were like on the it's like the wild west you know and one of the things you learn growing up in this part of the country or if you've ever gone to san francisco and to the golden gate park is you don't get close to the buffalo you're supposed to stay like you know 200 feet or a thousand feet away or whatever but no not not in this case the buffalo ran right up to our truck you know and i yeah. could have like put my hand out and touch one but um so that buffalo Buffalo herd has been there for a long time, and he learned a lot about buffalo um, uh, in that trip, which I could tell you more about, but I know we got to take a break. Yeah, you're listening to KSQD in Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM, your ink spot on the dial, and ksqd.org on the internet. And here comes a message. <laughs> 
everyone. I'm Linda Berman Hall, founding host of A Cutting Edge. Every Sunday at 7.30 on KSQD 90.7 FM, one of our co-hosts interviews UCSC researchers about the lectures, book signings, conferences, or performances that they'll soon be sharing with the community. Learn the inside story here on KSQD 90.7 FM. You're listening to Sustainability Now. This is Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest tonight is uh, Jenny Reardon, professor of sociology at UC Santa Cruz. We have been talking just now about buffalo in Kansas. Isn't there a buffalo on the Kansas State seal? Um, or is that some other state? I, I don't remember. It doesn't really matter. You should th- you would think I would know. Well, yeah. Uh, I know but, there's um, some... some- Let's, wheat. I think it was wheat on the Kansas State. So, but anyway. uh, well, that makes much more sense, yeah. yeah. Maybe Buffalo. it's Colorado. Um, anyway, you mentioned Thomas Frank's book, yeah. uh, What's the Matter with Kansas, published in 2004. And he went out there to try and figure out why the people of Kansas were voting against their economic interests for Republicans. Um, in those days, I think we used to think that people voted their economic interests rather mm-hmm. than their beliefs and fantasies and and rages, as as I think we're coming to think about now. Um, but uh, what, what what did you find in terms of sort of the sense of of economics? You know, because you talk about yeah. about globalization yep. and financialization yep. in the description of the project. And yes, well, yes. Yeah, so one of the things, I mean, in terms of globalization and financialization, one of the things I've been really interested in is the history of banks in Kansas. Right. They weren't a- there. Agrarian populism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and yeah. they weren't there before. Um, uh, how how these new techniques of fight? I actually spent a day on the training uh, floor at uh, um, Gold, uh, Goldman Sachs um, and talking. Interestingly okay. enough, I um, met the person who um, is in charge of commodities training at Goldman Sachs, and he knew about the same snowstorm I did in Kansas um, that killed off a bunch of cattle, and was very interested in what I was doing because it turns out that what actually happens on the land still matters, um, but. Because of financialization, um, you know, the ability to manipulate prices and, you know, it used to be that what would happen is you would, if you were a farmer and you wanted to figure out when to sell, right, you would call the local co-op and say, hey, what are the prices today? Now you have an app on your phone and any minute, you know, you could look and there's a different price. It's changing all the time. And one of the things I've heard from farmers is that that adds a whole level of stress for them, you know, like, when should I sell? When should I not? Um, the, the the volatility of the market is uh, much more extreme than it used to be mm-hmm. when you were, you know, and, and, and that the level of complexity around um, financial technology, you know, technology has always been a big part of agriculture. The plow we think about, no. but algorithms we didn't think about and now it is a big part of farmer a farmer's life and it's increased the stress because you there's so many different decisions points for you you always are thinking should i sell should i sell should i sell um do i get crop insurance you know do i do i buy futures you know what you know there's all kinds of new financial instruments that didn't used to be there um that are um there now and um globalization of course is important in all these most recently, the renegotiation of NAFTA. Um, and one of the things that I have been hearing um, is that, you know, of course, everyone's talking about this too. Farmers were none too happy with Donald Trump's um, renegotiation of, of NAFTA. It threw them into chaos. Mm. Um, so one thing that you don't want if you're farming is more sources of uncertainty. 
Yeah, sure. The weather is already a source of great uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I've learned from the biking. We haven't talked so much about that aspect of this project, but one of the things that I get out of biking is just understanding just how precarious um, the land and the weather is. And you could go from a beautiful sunny day to a a thunderstorm with the power of a hydrogen bomb, you know, like within an hour. Um, And if you don't see it coming, um, <laughs> I've had to learn how to learn how to deal with this. I'll just tell you one quick story about that. Um, uh, the last time I was, well, when I was out there last spring, um, there was a projected, maybe this was this last time there was projected hailstorms, And, um, and I, I, I wrote to my, I texted my best friend, Angela, and I said, uh, she said, you know, that there's a, a big hailstorm coming and we might get two inches of hail. And I said, uh, but, well, okay, but you know, uh, I, ho- I said, are you home? Can you bail me out? And she wrote back and she said, not in a hailstorm. <laughs> it's like, oh, right. Even in a car, that is yeah, not a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the weather is really precarious. And so then if you add on um, the financial world onto that, you've, you're just doubling, you're, you're increasing the levels of uncertainty. And that's a real, um, that's a real change that's driving, you know, some people out of, out of agriculture, you know, we've had enough of this. It's, um, but the na- renegotiation of NAFTA did not win Trump any, um, uh, supporters. What, 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 what element of that is, is, uh, does it have something to do with corn or something? Well, part of it was the, the, the trade wars with China. With China too. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it meant that, you know, this was a, this was a big news story about a year ago, the way in which farmers in this country were losing a lot of money because of the tariffs and, you know, the story I was hearing is, yes, they're giving us subsidies, but, you know, there there, are lobbies that, you know, they're still, they're strong, as you may know, they're strong um, lobbies for particular um, uh, crops, not all crops. So wheat still has a strong lobby, but um, I can't remember if it was corn or soybeans, they only gave a penny and, you know, as a subsidy and, and folks said, you know, like, don't even, don't even insult us with this penny. Um, so the subsidies did not make up for the losses that the farmers were seeing because of the trade war with China. And, and the, what I've heard is that the renegotiated um, treaty, many of them see as being no better than NAFTA. So we just went through a year and a half of chaos and threw us into a recession, an agriculture, what they're calling an agricultural recession. Yeah, I mean, it's, it strikes me overall that, you know, in, in addition to the precarity of a farmer, your typical farmer, right? Yeah. And the uncertainty of financial markets, you've got all of these politics going on, right? right. And people betting against you in the in the trading markets and the commodity people buying short and, and right, sort of trying to, to, to suss out which way to go, right? And um and competition. It's it sounds pretty hellish. Mm-hmm. But oh, and the other thing was that you know we encourage ag- agriculture so much that we we have these enormous surpluses right. that have something has to be done with them, right? And they get thrown out into the world market and screw that up more, mm-hmm. right? You know, and it's it would make it. it there's always this thing about how are we going to feed the ten billion, mm-hmm. but why the hell are we producing you know corn that's only going to feed feed sustainable beef? If that's what they're going to eat. I mean, I don't quite see how that's going to work out either. But, yeah. Um, it's a crazy system, right? But yeah. it's so difficult to change it, um, you know, to, to do it in any kind of yeah. rational fashion. And we're a nation, you know, built on agriculture. 
You know, yeah, we were well, a sure. we're nation that was supposed to be a bunch of gentlemen farmers, you know, out there producing. Gentlemen you know, in particular. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is important. Jefferson, yeah. Yeah. Um, to this Jeffersonian yeah, notion of democracy. And so, um, you know, that's that's an important point. You know, farming as a way of life, farming as a as an American way of life. Um, and uh, we have a lot of um, policies, old policies, new policies that are around protecting protecting that that don't always make a lot of sense in terms of uh, trying to uh, support lives and families. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, you have the, deeply entrenched um, uh, interest groups. Yeah. Yeah. So. The, the, the old myths die hard if they ever die. You yeah. Know? It's kind of interesting. I mean, I talk about that all the time to my students about the, the uh, suburban house being a Jeffersonian dream. Mm hmm. Right, that we replicated in so many, and now we we've got urban agriculture and and people wanting to have their little farms, and it's all part of this this um, mythology in many ways. Well, it's also interesting, you know, in the middle of one of the challenges of biking across Kansas has actually been trying to get food. Um, you know, so in the middle <laughs> of this huge agricultural district, you know, there's food everywhere, but none that anyone none that could eat. eat. You know, yeah. I, here's a, here's a funny story about like how much I did not know before I started biking across Kansas. I, the first day I was biking and I saw what I thought were all these dead, all this dead corn. And I thought, what what's going on here? Like, why didn't the farmer harvest the corn before it died? And it wasn't it, the the corn was not meant for me though it was right. meant for the cattle, the cattle and yeah. and and it was perfectly okay for right. the cattle to eat um so there used to be uh you know that when people lived on farms they did have their own gardens right sure, um, sure. but now more than often than not um you have what they used to call suitcase farmers you know people who live in town um who maybe moved the 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 house that was on their farm outside of town into town you know actually there's a lot of that people well, lifted up the house put it on a on truck and moved it into town um you don't have these gardens that that used to be there and so um i'm always really excited when i see that someone has a garden um because in, in, in grocery stores is another big problem there are not grocery stores in many parts of, of kansas so actually finding food, food is hard deserts out in yeah the, in the, yeah well listen we're we're just about out of time so i want to thank you so much for being on sustainability now listeners if you want to hear more about professor reardon's research by bike you can hear a podcast by going to the science and justice center website at scijust.ucse.edu and searching for the undisciplining sessions. Um, two weeks from today, my guest will be Nancy Falstich, executive director of Regeneration in Watsonville, founded on the principle that climate change is a social justice issue with local impacts and must be engaged with on a local level in order to build resilient communities. That's Sunday, February 23rd, 5 to 6 p.m., right here on KSQD 90.7 FM on your dial. And by the way... The station is rebroadcasting Sunday shows, both this one and Jill Cody's uh, Be Bold America, from 5 to 6 p.m. on Tuesday mornings. Um, oh, sorry, from the 5 to 6 p.m. slot on Sundays in the 6 to 7 a.m. slot on Tuesday mornings, just in case you get up at 6 o'clock. <laughs>